We're reading from the uh, book of Job. We're getting the first chapter, then going, or one verse out of the first chapter, then going into the second. And then the second one is, uh, is Job losing his good health. Uh, in the first chapter, kind of the same scenario takes place that we're reading in the, in the second chapter of God and Satan making a, a wager. But in that first one is the uh, killing of all of Job's children and animals and uh, destruction of uh, property. So we're not reading that part, but we're reading the, the second part. I also think that in this uh, Old Testament lesson, the devil's or Satan's uh, response being rather sarcastic is rather interesting too. So let's read from the Old Testament lesson, the book of Job. There once was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. One day the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down the earth. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still persists in his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him for no reason. Then Satan answered the Lord, Skin for skin, all that people have they will give to save their lives but stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face the lord said to satan very well he is in your power only spare his life so satan went out from the presence of the lord and inflicted loathsome sores on job from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head job took a potsherd with him or with which to scrape himself and himself and sat among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as any foolish woman would speak. Shall we receive the good at the hand of God and not receive the bad? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Our gospel is from Gospel of Mark, and we are picking up right after last week's reading, which is at the end of chapter 9, and Jesus and his disciples are in Capernaum uh, in a home, more than likely Peter's house. And so hear now how God is speaking to you through these words of the Gospel of Mark. Some Pharisees came, and to test him they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What did Moses command you? They said Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of dismissal and to to divorce her. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment for you. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And then in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. 
And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And people were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them, and the disciples spoke sternly to them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not stop them, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. And he took them up in his arms and laid, laid his hands on them and blessed them. And here ends the reading. Thanks be to God. Do you care enough about me to listen to my story? Do you care enough about me to listen to my story? It's a question asked I think in these texts, at least Job and Mark. And we'll read more from the book of Job's, uh, book of Job in coming weeks, and I'll speak more about it uh, then. But I'll, I'll say now that the book of Job is partly asking this question. At least Job is asking this question. Do you care enough about me to listen to my story? Uh, but the book of Job also holds in tension, as much as the Bible does, uh, multiple truths. At the same time, and some that would seem to be in conflict and some that are in conflict. It holds up the truth that being faithful leads to reward and blessings. But also the truth that being faithful leads to suffering. And the truth that God is good. But also the truth that God is kind of a jerk here. For uh, making Job suffer just to win a wager. And all of this tension and these truths are wrapped in this narrative framework in which neither Job's friends nor his wife ever care enough, really, to listen to his story. They only offer advice. And he doesn't want to be told what's wrong and how to fix it. He knows what's wrong. That's not what Job is is looking for. And it's not what the book is looking to answer. I think the book very much is about living in uh, in that ambiguity because there are few, if any, good answers to complex questions. The lesson is that faith is partly to live in the ambiguity and in that tension. Much as the homeless and others that we're serving in our street ministry, they're not looking for us to sweep in uh, and save them with our truth, telling them where they went wrong or how they, how they ought to live or what they need to do to be the people that we think they ought to be. They're not a problem to be fixed. Homelessness is a problem to be fixed. Poverty is a problem to be fixed. But the homeless... And the poor are not a problem. They're people. And they're people that have stories. We're there to help. To ask, are you hungry? And to care enough to listen to their story because they're human beings. In this last week, you've probably seen in the news a big story about Jennifer Livingston, one of the anchors down at WKBT in La Crosse. And she had received an email from a a man that she doesn't know, but he at least had the integrity to uh, sign his name and leave an email address. 
but sent her this email saying that she's fat and she's obese and that she's not a good role model for girls, I, which is insulting enough as it is, uh, but it also is really stripping her of her womanhood. It's really saying that her only role as a female is to be the proper body image that young girls should aspire to be. It's not good. Not good. Completely discounting her as a role model, as a professional, an educated person, a person who has striven to succeed and making it in the world, just reduced to a body. And she responded to the man's email on TV, and, and in the response she says, you don't even know me. She could very well have, say, have said, you don't even care enough to know my story, and yet you're going to fix me. She's a human being and not a body, a person, not an object. And it happened to be later in the week, some more truth in this story came out and there's been some recon reconciliation. The gentleman that wrote the letter has admitted that he has always had a struggle with his weight. And he is now thin, but only thin by uh, an awful lot of effort. Now that they have shared some story, they can go forward. Maybe something can come out of that. And Jesus is saying a similar thing to his questioners as well. They're asking about a divorce. What is legal? They're, in a sense, ignoring the humanity here. They're ignoring the personhood. They're just reducing it down to a, a law. And he responds basically to them, says, well, from a legal standpoint, I mean, if you really want to get legal about it, what you allow is sinful. You're not legalistic enough. You're not taking it to enough of an extreme. Moses allowed for divorce because you are hard-hearted. But let's go back to the beginning, he says. And divorce in Jesus' time was a purely one-sided thing. Only the men could offer a divorce. The women had no recourse uh, for asking for one. But the men could just do it. And when the man decided to divorce the woman, she's just gone. She gets nothing left on her own. Maybe, hopefully, her family will help out. Maybe not. Jesus says, let's just go all the way back, that back in Eden, back in the place where God's intent was how life happened, there was mutuality. There was holy respect for one another. They lived as one. And he says, divorce, this question about divorce isn't the right question. The question is, how do we live in God's kingdom? And God's kingdom is about compassion, mercy, love. People aren't just an object to be conformed to some legalistic standards without any regard for their story or for their circumstances. Uh, it's not a, a, a one-rule-fits-all kind of world. And so Jesus says, these competing truths, divorce is bad. It's not something, it's not something to be desired. Uh, and it's also uh, bad because it's so easy for the man and so devastating uh, to the woman. And with the disciples, he calls it, he says it's adultery if there's divorce and then a remarriage. And also note that he includes the line, and if the woman divorces her husband, which was not allowed. So why would Jesus add that line? Well, I think maybe it's to, to say, well, if we're going to have divorce, let's at least have it be equally accessible. To both parties. 
And he's suggesting that women ought to have that right. So there's that. It's, it's bad, or at least not to be desired. But there's also the truth that he forgives the woman who is accused of adultery. And when he's with the woman at the well, this woman who's been married many times, he really neither forgives nor condemns her. He just accepts her as she is, as the person that she is. It doesn't even really come up. And that's that part of being childlike that he goes into at the end of our passage, I think, is to say, forget the legalism. Just accept the grace and the love. Accept it in awe and wonder and live in holy joy with God. And so divorce, maybe not how it should be, but not all marriages are made in heaven. Some are born in hell, and they need to end. They're not healthy. It's not good for people to be in unhealthy situations. And above all of that is God's grace over everything. And we are today at World Communion Sunday where churches all over the world are celebrating communion, which is a good thing, but we're not doing it together. It's also a day to remind us of our brokenness that the church is divided, and that much of that division is over competing truth claims. I was, yesterday had the privilege uh, to be at my cousin's wedding. She got married down in Sparta at St. Patrick's Catholic Church uh, in Sparta. And it was a full mass, the wedding, so they celebrated Eucharist. Uh, but as they, as they got into the Eucharist part, the priest reminded us that it was only for Catholics, that the rest of us may not receive it. And I thought, here we are at a wedding, the joining of two people in love, the joining of two families in love. And then after the, this couple has been joined, we get to the Eucharist and the priest says, in fact, but I remind you that we are divorced and that I have a restraining order against some of you, that you can't come to the table. And so I sat while they were having the Eucharist and I contemplated that this is not what I would have for the church. And I think maybe not what Jesus would have for the church. But I also contemplated that this is happening on World Communion Sunday weekend. And I thought, at least maybe on this weekend, can't we all just come to the table together? At least one time out of the year. And I thought, you know, not only am I being denied a spot at the table, I was thinking... I can't go up and receive communion, but in less than 24 hours, I'm going to be with my congregation presiding at the table. If I can do it here, why can't I even eat there? And it's the same table, I think. It's the same table. And it's unfortunate, and I have to put some onus on the the Catholics here, and I'm not going on an anti-Catholic diatribe here. It's just that's where I was yesterday, so this is uh, in my mind. But I have to put the onus on the Catholics there because they're unwilling, at least as I see it, they're unwilling to listen to my story. That we are Christians. 
We have different thoughts about what that means, but we're all Christians, and we ought to be able at least to go to the table together, even though our understandings of that might be different. And they make the claim that their truth is the only truth. And that kind of scares me and, and frustrates me. And, that's, and, and it's not just the Catholics, we all do this. I'm not picking on them. As I said, this is where I was yesterday, so that's what uh, I'm thinking about. We all do it in one way or another. All denominations have their own claims. And even we in the UCC, we have this very long tradition of being ecumenical and welcoming and working with people. We still have our issues sometimes when uh, others ask us to join in, and we look and we go, well, that church isn't uh, accepting of gays and lesbians so maybe we shouldn't work with them, right? We also have some of our blind spots. But it bugs me that the one place Christianity is particularly divided is at the table. We get so legalistic. And we don't hear because we have an open table. And thank God for that. Anyone can come to the table. But it's kind of the picture that I see is sort of what we have of Jesus in this Story that as people come to the table, they're asked, what is your understanding of communion? And I wonder, do we want a dentist? That when we're ready to get some needed health care, the dentist asks us first, what is your understanding of the theory and practice of Western dentistry? I want to make sure you have it correct before I, I work on you. As though that's going to have some effect on... on how well it works. I, Jesus is saying, come to the kingdom like a child. With eyes wide open and willing to accept. And instead of asking someone when they come to the table, what is your understanding? Which is kind of like saying you can't come to the table unless you understand as I do. You have to prove your truth matches mine first. I, that's the wrong frame to put it in. It's a good question for small groups or Bible studies or when you're talking with people, what is your understanding? But as a conversation, not as a test. It's not about, uh, Jesus says to the Pharisees, it's not about divorce and legalism because it's so much bigger than that. Because life and faith are messy and real and ambiguous and confusing and full of competing truths that are all equally true in many ways. We ought to be able to live in that tension, live in the tension that this ritual of eating at the table means so many different things to different people. Catholics are right, we're right, the Methodists are right, the Orthodox are right, the Coptics are right. All all are coming at something, a truth that none of us can have all of. So why not at least work together? And that it's not up to us to defend the table and ask those who come, what is your purpose or are you fit? Do you have the right understanding? Because we're in a position of power. And that's an abuse of our position of power. I I would say it's up to us who are already here not to ask questions, but to be the ones who get questioned by those who would come. who might very well be asking, do you care enough about me to listen to my story? I'm hungry. I want to be fed. I desire to be fed. 
then, then we'll be living like we're in God's kingdom, where we already are, where we already are.